Church, well, hey, uh, coming to you live from my office here. Uh, we are so sorry about the technical difficulties that uh, came up with our live stream on Sunday. We know that uh, for those of you watching from home or hoping to catch this sermon uh, live online, the recording had some issues and live stream wasn't working. So thanks for your patience as we work out those issues. Again, this was the first Sunday morning we were trying that. So we're, uh, we're working hard on getting that fixed. But in the meantime, we wanted to make sure that uh, we could re-record the sermon here so that you didn't miss out on any of the, the content in our walk through the Gospel of John. And so uh, thanks for tuning in. And, and one of the things we talked about on Sunday uh, was our new monthly challenge for the month of April. As you know, uh, this calendar year, every month uh, with the Go Where You Are initiative, uh, we've wanted to think and act like missionaries here in Benicia. And so we've tried to have one action step each month to get us all moving. The first one was just to fill out the Your Four card and be praying for people in your life. Uh, last month was to do a purposeful act of kindness for someone on your Your Four card. Uh, this month, we talked about this on Sunday, the, the Your Four month, or excuse me, the monthly challenge uh, associated with the month of April is going to be to initiate a spiritual conversation with someone on your Your Four card. And, and simply by asking them about their spiritual background. Again, it can be a simple question. Uh, hey, do you have much of a spiritual background? Did you grow up going to church or with any sort of faith background? Um, and just kind of see what they say. It's a chance to learn about your neighbors, uh, to listen well. It might lead to a chance to share um, your background and what you believe about Jesus, but it might be a chance just to, to build relationship, to listen, to learn, and see how God uses that. So that's the monthly challenge. Uh, with that, would you uh, join me in a brief word of prayer before we get into the message? Father, thanks for uh, time here now to look into your word. And even though, again, there are tech technology issues on Sunday, we're grateful that we could uh, still just, just tune in here, wherever people might be coming from, to look at John chapter 3 and, and what you're saying to us uh, this morning. Lord, we love you. We pray you'd guide us. Would you teach us? Open our eyes and our ears, Lord. Uh, we give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, we talked about on Sunday the fact that we all have this longing for change, this sense that things should be different, this desire for things to look different in our world. And sometimes that's world uh, at large, right? We look at the world around us and we read the news and we we hear about injustice. We hear about uh, evil and death and murder and whatever it might be going on around us and we long for change. Sometimes we long for change uh, in our own lives, right? We look at our, our family, our, our relationships, there's tension. We look at um, our, our health or our hearts or whatever it might be and we, we want things to be different. We have this sense that things aren't quite the way they're supposed to be. Now, if we have this desire for change, we can all relate to that sentiment. We have probably a lot of different opinions about what needs to change, right? What exactly, what specifically needs to look different in the world? Sometimes we say, well, it's a change in information. Like people need to know more. It's a matter of information and knowledge. Maybe it's even the right spiritual things. People need to just learn, be educated about different topics and get the right information in their head. That's the main thing that needs to change. Uh, some of us would say, no, it's not as much that. It's more uh, systemic changes needed. Changes in our government, our legal system, laws need to be, be adjusted and changed. 
Uh, some people would say, no, it's actually like circumstantial change. You know, people need to get out of their present circumstances. It's their, you know, toxic relationships or lack of money or, uh, you know, harmful living situation, whatever it might be. That's what needs to change. People need to change their environment, their external circumstances. Now, I think you can make an argument for any number uh, of changes in those categories we just talked about in different times and different ways. Uh, we absolutely need changes in those ways. But the Bible points us to a deeper need, a deeper reality, a more foundational uh, change that is required for each of us. See, a few years ago, we talked about this. Well, we talked about this before. Fox came out with a TV show called Utopia. We talked about this not that long ago. Uh, Utopia, it was a series that they did where they took 15 people and they wanted to try to give them a chance to start civilization over. So take 15 people, put them in an isolated, undeveloped area and let them build Utopia, build a more perfect civilization. Uh, how do you think they did? Yeah, it was a disaster. It was a disaster in more ways than one. Okay, first it just it was a bad TV show. It got canceled pretty quick, and that's probably why many of you haven't even heard of it. But but with this blank slate, this fresh start, this ability to to build utopia, peaceful civilization, it didn't work. One critic, after watching the show, commented, uh, and here's the quote: "He said uh, it really ought to have been called farming, fighting, and fornicating, but mostly." fighting. Fox executives could have saved substantial production costs and achieved basically the same boring result by filming 14 monkeys in a cage with 10 or containing only 10 bananas. It was far from the peaceful, harmonious place they hoped it would be. Throughout the first two episodes, they say five of the eight men have violent physical outbursts. Uh, the first night, there's a case of alcohol poisoning. Another night has some threatening sexual behavior, multiple fights. Uh, the group failed miserably at Utopia. Why? Because it seems that simply external changes are not enough. Environmental changes are not enough. They had a fresh start. They had a, a clean slate. All sorts of baggage was removed, and yet there still were all these problems because they needed something deeper to change within their hearts. This morning, we're going to see this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, uh, this Jewish leader, and they're going to get into kind of a debate about the change or the transformation that's needed within the human heart. Look at the text. If you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 3. Or if you're, again, uh, want to follow along on your device or uh, go to you know Bible.com, whatever. However you need to get to John chapter 3, join me there. We're going to start reading. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, first consider the context with me. Okay, at the end of chapter 2, what was happening? Remember, there's this conflict building between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. In fact, on Easter Sunday, we looked at Jesus in the temple 
swinging around a whip, flipping over tables, driving people out, sending animals, uh, you know, scattering and, and coins clinging because the, the leaders in the temple had allowed true, genuine worship to deteriorate into something else. Now, we saw that the Jewish leaders didn't like the fact that Jesus was confronting them, challenging them, uh, publicly critiquing them. And so they get into this series of, uh, of dialogues with him. We're going to see that throughout the Gospel of John. Jewish leaders coming to Jesus, uh, those in charge trying to discredit Jesus. Now, chapter 3 that we're just reading now starts with this subtle link back to chapter 2. Chapter 2 actually ends with these words, verse 24. It says, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Uh, the word there for each person is actually the word man, meaning uh, mankind. Jesus saw that some people were coming to him, some people were starting to believe in him, but he didn't entrust himself to people, to, to men, because he knew that their allegiance was, was fickle. They were conflicted in their hearts. And now, notice chapter 3, verse 1 starts out by saying what? Hey, there was this man named Nicodemus. In other words, in the end of chapter 2, we're talking about how he didn't entrust himself to men. And now here's this man, Nicodemus. Again, speaking of people who were divided and conflicted in their hearts that Jesus didn't entrust himself to, here's one such person, Nicodemus, comes on to the scene. Now, what does the text tell us about Nicodemus? We can call him Nick for short. Our friend Nick says, verse 1, he's a Pharisee. Okay, they were known for, this was a group at the time, uh, the Jews who were known for their strict regard for the law and for tradition. They were a fairly influential group at the time. It also says that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Okay, they had a large say in, in legal matters and social matters of the day. So likely Nicodemus was wealthy. He was uh, influential. He had status. Now, but there's another key detail that the text tells us about this encounter, right? When does Nicodemus come to Jesus? Verse 2. He comes at night. Now, uh, we don't know exactly why. Uh, some would say, well, that's simply when Jewish teachers, rabbis, leaders were able to have these sorts of dialogues. So, you know, you get off work and you go uh, meet with people at the pub. You have a brew, have a chat, talk theology. Uh, some say, well, he came at night not for that reason, but because he wanted to avoid being seen. Right? Maybe he's, he's embarrassed to come to Jesus. He didn't want his Pharisee buddies to know about it. Maybe that's the case. Uh, but also, I think there's another layer here. Uh, John, throughout the gospel, often will talk about darkness and light and contrast them. And so when we see references to darkness, it tells us something, uh, not just like a, a true historic detail, which it is, but it's also a clue that maybe there's something spiritual going on here. Maybe there's a spiritual reality where, where Nicodemus is in darkness. He hasn't quite seen the truth. He, he's not quite uh, able to see. He's not quite aware of his need, but he has a deep need and he's walking in darkness. So Nicodemus comes at night and look at how he leads the conversation. 
Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher, this is verse 2, who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now here, we have to decide what to do with Nicodemus and his posture. Like, how are we going to interpret our friend Nick here? On the surface, it sounds like a pretty respectful opening. And so some people will say, hey, Nicodemus was a genuine, uh, interested person. He was an inquirer. He was open to what Jesus had to say, really wanted to know what Jesus was about. But I think for a few reasons in the text, there's reason to believe that uh, with all this challenge going on, again, before this passage and after with between religious leaders and Jesus, it seems that maybe Nicodemus is a part of that. And he's a little less than sincere as he approaches Jesus. Maybe he has some curiosity there, but really, this is more of a challenge, a, a confrontation. You know, with this opening line, he's basically implying, uh, with this lofty praise, Jesus, you're, you're claiming to be someone important. You're showing us some, some interesting signs. So, what do you have to say for yourself? Who are you? I really want to assess the evidence. I want to evaluate. I want to judge if you're really uh, going to pass my test. And Jesus sniffs out this, I think, false flattery and gets right to work. Look at verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. So Nicodemus says, hey, pleasure to meet you, Nicodemus, but I'm not going to jump through your hoops. In fact, I want to be the one to set the agenda for where this conversation is heading. And what I want to talk about is how does someone see or enter the kingdom of God? You notice that in verse 3? He's talking about seeing or entering the kingdom. Now, uh, the scriptures speak quite often of the fact that God is the king. He's the one true king of the world. He, he reigns. In fact, there's this uh, promise of a coming king, a coming Messiah that would rule and, and reign over uh, the people of Israel and extend the glory of God and the presence of God throughout all the earth. One who would come from the line of David, fulfill Old Testament prophecy and promises and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And so for Nicodemus, Hearing about seeing or participating in God's kingdom was about uh, eternal life. It was about being a part of that, that future coming kingdom of God, uh, being resurrected at the end of the age, living with God uh, under his rule and reign uh, into eternity. And so here's the question. How does someone get in on that? How does someone participate in the kingdom of God? And Jesus answers this in verse 3. He says what? You have to be born again or born from above. So Jesus is going to use the language here of, of new birth. It's the same language we saw in uh, chapter 1 of John. If you remember verse 13 where it talks about how through Jesus we have the right to become children of God, born uh, not of human will, but born of God. Now, Nicodemus is clearly confused by this. 
right? And you see verse 4, he's kind of like, what are you talking about, Jesus? You can't come out of your mother's womb again. You can't be born again. So what do you mean you have to be born again? And Jesus elaborates a little bit in verse 5. He says, actually, you have to be born of the water and spirit. We're going to talk about what this means. But, but a few points Jesus is making here about entering the kingdom of God. It requires transformation. It requires change in a few ways. First, being a part of God's kingdom requires transformation that is radical. Radical. Think about the language of birth. Okay, We're not talking about gradual, incremental change or just slight modifications or adjustments to your life. Like come to Jesus and learn a few new you know, moral commands or, or ethics to follow in your life. Like before we've used the illustration that we're not talking about, you know, an upgrade, a software update for your computer or, you know, a, a muffler or new something for your car. You know, we're talking about a whole new computer, a whole new life. Uh, think about birth. Now, uh, I was born at a very young age, so I, t I don't remember it quite well. Uh, but I was there when my daughter Zoe was born and when our son Shepard was born. And it's a big deal, right? If you, ladies, if you've given birth or, or fellas, if you've witnessed a birth, you've been present there, you know that it is a big deal that there's a new life now, right? Something, someone is there uh, that was not there before. Theologian John Calvin comments on this passage by saying, by the term born again, he means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. Now, I heard this story recently. Uh, Tim Keller shared it in a sermon. He was talking about the, the famous preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in London. Martin Lloyd-Jones explained one time that he would often want to know where people were at spiritually, and he would ask them a simple question just to see if they understood the gospel. And the question he asked was, are you a Christian? Simple enough, right? Are you a Christian? And he said a lot of the time, a high percentage of the time, people would respond with something like, well, I'm trying to be. I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, you know, kind of, kind of better than I, than I was before. I think I'm kind of getting on all right with it. Uh, I'm trying to be. And he said that whenever people would respond that way, it was a clue that he could see. And you'd have to try and explain to them that that shows that they don't really understand what the Christian life is all about. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand this, this radical transformation that takes place if we are Christians. Because being a Christian, again, requires this radical change of status. Not, not a small incremental changes, but we are adopted into the family of God. We are born again. We have gone from death to life, slavery to freedom. So that is like, like foundational to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Right? To have an accurate a biblical view of conversion. That when we come to Christ, it's this radical transformation, this new birth, new status, new life that we have that, that was not there before. So it's not a matter of, of trying or working on it or kind of somewhat better. It's, it's either we're in darkness and death or 
we've come into the light and into life. I was lost and now I'm found. We see this uh, in an, another famous uh, British uh, preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Maybe you've heard the story of his conversion. Uh, one snowy Sunday morning, he couldn't make it to his normal church, and he had to go to a church nearby because of the snow. And a, a, the pastor of that church couldn't even show up because of the snow. And so a deacon of the church, uh, with no one else there able to give the message, he had to be the one who stood up and gave the message. And it was very simple. He simply called people to look to Jesus. Look unto Christ, look to him, and be saved. And it was in that simple message that Spurgeon understood the gospel. A light bulb went on, something clicked. He, he realized his need for Jesus and put his faith in him. Even though uh, he'd heard about Jesus before growing up in a number of ways, it was that moment where something changed. And so for some of you, it, it might be like Spurgeon's experience where a light bulb went on and it felt like the, you know, the, the switch was turned from, from off to on, death to life. Uh, but sometimes experientially, let's be honest, for some of us, it feels more like a dimmer switch is turned on. You know, slowly over time, God helps us see who he is. And it's, it's hard for some of us to point to a specific, you know, conversion moment, the night that you prayed the prayer uh, the day where it all changed. Again, for many of us, that's the case. For some of us, it's harder to pinpoint that, but we just realize, uh, I know that I'm walking with Jesus now, and I'm not sure exactly when that transition took place, but God has done this over time. But I want us to know, if if that's you, that there was a place where where you crossed over. It wasn't just that we, hey, you slowly worked yourself into it, even though experientially it might feel that way. For all of us, there was a point of conversion, uh, whether it felt like a dimmer switch or just a on-off switch. At some point, we crossed over. At some point, God, in his grace, rescued us and brought us from death to life. Jesus made us alive. Jesus set us free. That's what it means to be a Christian. So the, the transformation that is required to enter the kingdom is first radical. It's radical. But there's another point here. Being a part of God's kingdom requires transformation that is internal. Okay, if you look at verse 5, Jesus kind of unpacks further uh, what it means being born of the water and spirit. Uh, these are both important Old Testament uh, images, water and spirit. And it, it reminds us of a text like Ezekiel 36. Okay, I want to read from Ezekiel 36 for us. In there it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of flesh or of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will keep my I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So the water reference here in Ezekiel 36, and I think in John chapter 3, is talking about this, this cleansing. Right? I will wash you. I will make you clean. This is what happens when we come to him through the work of Jesus. Right? We're washed. We're cleansed. We're forgiven. Our sin is, is removed. And, and not only that, but, but God gives us a new heart. You see the Ezekiel passage said, I will put my spirit in you. I'll give you a heart of flesh. So I'm going to change something within you. I'm going to do something deep down within you, and it's going to be uh, fundamentally different than you are 
now or you were before. God doesn't just want us to jump through external hoops, you know, go to church, uh, do some important, you know, acts of service, uh, get really involved in a Bible study, just kind of jump through these hoops, get socialized into to church world. That's not what God's about. God wants to make a, a deep internal transformation within. He wants to change your heart and give you a new heart. And this is why utopia didn't work, right? Because again, uh, people with a fresh start, all sorts of external circumstantial changes, but still they're the same hearts, which shows us what we need is not just external change. We need, we need deep internal change. And that's what God does. He promises to give us a new heart through the work of Jesus. He gives us uh, new desires, right? We start to, to want things we didn't want before. We start to maybe uh, be, be turned off by things that we used to maybe enjoy. We start to head in a new direction. Right? And if you're a gardener, uh, which I'm, you know, kind of, not really, but I try, uh, you know that weeds are not dealt with properly if you just do a surface fix, right? If you have weeds out in your backyard or in your garden bin, you just kind of snip off the top of them, they're not gonna go away, right? They're gonna continue to affect your yard and your garden. What, what needs to be changed with weeds is, is something deeper. It's going to be dug out, roots pulled up, replaced with something new. We would never just chop down the top and think that that would be the fix. And so it is with our lives. God has to do something deep, internal within us. So in order to enter the kingdom of God, we need this, this transformation that is radical, this transformation that is internal, and lastly, being a part of God's kingdom requires transformation that is from God. Right? Verse 3 talks about being born again or born from above, it could be translated. Or verse 5, born of the Spirit. And Jesus continues in verse 6. You might have noticed this. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So his logic here is simple, right? Flesh and spirit are fundamentally different. And so we can't expect new spiritual life to come from us or to come from the flesh. It has to be something that the Spirit does. It has to be something that God does. God, by his grace, gives us life. And the biblical word for this is, is regeneration. God takes us when we're dead and he makes us alive. And it, it's not our own doing. It's not from us. I mean, think about your own testimony. Isn't this our story? If you think about why you are a Christian, but other people are not. Why is that? You know, for me, is it simply that, well, I was smarter than other people, or I kind of, you know, connected the dots better, or I was maybe more deserving, and so God kind of helped me out? No, I think we have to say that the only explanation is that God, in his grace, changed our hearts. And I don't know, I don't know why, why me and uh, others. I can't explain why uh, I've come to faith in Christ, but others haven't, other than the, the grace of God. And the text even shows us there's, there's an element of mystery here, right? Verse 8, comparing the Holy Spirit to wind, right? Wind blows wherever it pleases. 
you hear it sound, it says, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. There's an element of mystery here that the Spirit, uh, we can't control the Holy Spirit. We can't predict the work of the Holy Spirit. But God uh, simply does what he does. And sometimes it's hard for us to pinpoint exactly why. So uh, the work of God in transforming our hearts is radical. It is uh, fundamentally internal. And it's fundamentally from God, something that he does. Now, if you have questions about this, don't worry. You're in good company because so did Nicodemus, right? After all of this, uh, how does Nicodemus respond? Verse 9 says, how can this be? In other words, to all this, he says, huh? What? I don't get it. I don't understand. Jesus, I'm not picking up what you're laying down. This was hard for Nicodemus to hear. And think about why. For Nicodemus, I mean, he was, he was educated. He was well-to-do. He was, he was influential. He had status. He had power. I mean, the language Jesus was using here about, about new birth, about being washed by the Spirit, was the type of language that Jews would use to talk about Gentiles who converted to their faith. Okay, so, so Gentiles were outsiders. They were, were non-Jews. And so when they would convert to Judaism, the Jews would think about a sort of new birth or cleansing that would take place. But here, we're not talking about an outsider, you know, an unclean Gentile. We're talking about Nicodemus. We're talking about this, this teacher of the Jews, this member of the Pharisees. I mean, whatever status you needed to be part of the kingdom of God, Nicodemus thought he already had it. And the same thing happens with us. Sometimes we think that we don't need what Jesus has to offer. Nicodemus is like, what do you mean you have to be born again, Jesus? I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm already in. I'm already in the camp. I have the status to prove it. But he can't see his need. And so sometimes for us, too, our religious credentials get in the way of us receiving the new life that Jesus offers. Again, maybe you're listening to this. You've been a part of a church for, for years and years, for decades. And you can point to the good works you've done. You can point to the money you've given. You can point to how involved you've been, how, how respected you are in the community. You, you were born in a pew, you might say. It's possible, again, that our religious credentials prevent us from receiving because we think that we're good to go. We think that we've done enough. We've earned our way. But the opposite can sometimes be true, right? We sometimes don't think that we need what Jesus has to offer, not because of our religious credentials, but because we think religion is, is silly. You know, maybe we think, hey, all this talk about sin and salvation and judgment is just really outdated and come on you know what's it about it's about being being a good person so be true to yourself uh, be a good person do good in the world and god's gonna give you a wink and a nod and, and be cool with you and let you into his kingdom but that's not what the scriptures teach either essentially the scriptures show that there are two ways to be lost one is quite obvious we turn from jesus we run the opposite direction we pay no regard to what his word says, and we do whatever we want. But the other way is to be, again, quite religious, like Nicodemus, kind of like the older brother in the prodigal son story. Stay home, 
do the right things on the outside, but internally still miss the heart of the gospel, still not truly love God. And so this passage is forcing us to really consider what is the nature of true spiritual life? What change really needs to take place in our lives? And Jesus is driving it home, hey, it's not horizontal change. It's not about your religious tradition or religious knowledge or religious behavior. It's not about, you know, uncovering your true self or developing some sort of new moral code uh, to be more obedient ethically. Because Nicodemus uh, likely could check all those boxes. You know, he taught others probably for years about what it meant to be accepted into the kingdom of God. Talk about obedience to God's commands and devotion to God and so on. But Jesus is trying to show him it's actually about something different entirely. He says you have to be born again. You need God and his grace to convert you, to transform you, to give you new life. Now you might be hearing this and say, well, that's kind of hard to quantify, right? At least if it's by works, if I have to earn it and be a good person, uh, then I kind of know how I'm doing, right? I could point to the good things I've done and kind of know where I stand. But if this is all of God and God has to do this, this work within my heart, how do I know if he's done it? How do I know if this has taken place or not? Here's, here's evidence. Here's how you can know. I don't want you to leave worried this morning. Here's how you can know. If you are convicted of your sin before a holy God, and you're convicted of your need for Jesus, then that's evidence of God doing this transforming work in your heart. Because if your heart hasn't been changed, and God has not done this work in your heart, then you're going to hear this message and, and shrug it off and not really care and not lose any sleep and just kind of go your own way. But if God in his grace is convicting you, is drawing you to Jesus, then that's evidence of God doing this work within you, of helping you see and respond to Jesus. Now, there's one other thing I want you to see in this text. We're going to look next week at the rest of the passage, uh, Jesus and Nicodemus. Nick at night, again, we've called it Nick at night. Uh, part two will be next week. But there's one other thing I want you to see this week. And not only do we need to look at the teaching of Jesus, but we need to look at the person of Jesus. Okay, Not only what Jesus is saying to us about new birth, but who he is showing himself to be. Look at verse 10, how the passage, or this chunk of it kind of wraps up. Verse 10, you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, Remember, throughout this encounter, Nicodemus looks pretty silly, right? I mean, apart from his introduction, he basically says, Huh? What? This doesn't make sense. It's like, like when I hear about NASCAR or decaf coffee, I'm just like, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm, I'm not picking up what you're laying down here. Uh, why? You know, that, that's what's going on. But, but you notice Jesus points that out in verse 10. He's like, hey, aren't you supposed to be Israel's teacher? Like of all people, you're, you're a Pharisee. You're on the... Uh, the ruling council of the Jews, shouldn't you know these things? 
I mean, if you don't get these things, how are you going to understand uh, uh, heavenly things? Verse 12, he's saying, greater things that I'm going to teach you about. If you can't understand this foundational issue. Now, I think Jesus' response here is a clue that Nicodemus' motives are maybe a little less than genuine, a little less than innocent. Because often when someone comes to Jesus in humility, truly desiring to learn, open to what he has to say, Jesus is pretty patient with them and gracious and brings them along. Uh, But when someone tries to question him, trap him, challenge him, uh, make him look silly, he says, okay, we can play hardball. So he's kind of doing that with Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus is trying to see if Jesus meets his standards, if Jesus passes his test, kind of challenging him. And Jesus says, okay, I can play that game. And he points out, hey, Nicodemus, you have no idea what you're talking about. He points out Nicodemus' spiritual bankruptcy, the bankruptcy of the Jewish leaders, because throughout the conversation, Nicodemus is, is fairly ignorant. And Jesus is the one who reveals the truth. Nicodemus comes at night, he's in darkness, but Jesus shines light. And so rather than Nicodemus being the true teacher of Israel, Jesus is showing himself to be the true rabbi, the the true teacher, the one who truly can show us the way to life and has the authority uh, to show us what is true and how we are to live. And so Jesus totally turns things around on Nicodemus. Uh, Where rather than Nicodemus saying, I'm going to see if you kind of meet my standards and measure up to what I think. And Jesus says, I'm actually going to turn this around and see if you, Nicodemus, align with me. Maybe you've had that experience where you come and you're like, I'm going to put Jesus under my microscope. I'm going to see if he passes my test. I'm I'm going to see if he really who is who he says he is. And you kind of, over time, find yourself instead under his microscope where you see that he is taking a look into your heart and he is calling you to submit to him and to obey him. And so for Nicodemus, this is a a baffling situation. He's confused. All his categories have been upended about what it means to know know God, to be a part of, of the kingdom. But Jesus is showing us the way. And so really, this is an opportunity for us. Will we be humble, open, receptive, and, and hear from Jesus? Or will we, like Nicodemus, uh, remain in darkness and try to, to challenge Jesus and stand opposed to him? Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word that you've shown us who you are. And we thank you for the, the truth of John chapter 3, Jesus, that you say we must be born again, born of water and the Spirit. And we thank you for this this new life that you've given us that's radical. We've gone from death to life. We were lost, now we're found. We were slaves, now you've set us free, Jesus. We thank you for this radical transformation. We thank you that you've done something internal within us, not just external change, but you've changed our hearts. Not that everything's going to be up and to the right and easy and we're never going to stumble again, but you have made us new, given us new hearts. And thank you, Jesus, that this all is from you. It's nothing that we earned or worked for or could produce in ourselves, but you have done it. And so we thank you for your grace and your love. And I pray if anyone's listening to this and they have not put their trust in you, that today would be the day, Jesus, where they turn to you in faith and repentance and receive this new life that you alone can offer. And the forgiveness of sins made possible through your work on the cross and your resurrection. 
Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen, friends. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you soon.